You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 169 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. My guest today is an anthropologist, author and activist by the name of Jerry B. Brown. Between 72 and 2014 he served as founding professor of anthropology at Florida International University in Miami, where he taught a course on hallucinogens and culture. Together with his wife, psychotherapist Julianne Brown, he wrote the book The Psychedelic Gospels, The Secret History of Hallucinogens in Christianity. This book reveals evidence of visionary plants in Christianity and in the life of Jesus. And this evidence is found in medieval art and in biblical scripture, hidden in plain sight for centuries. So thanks for being on the podcast. It's my pleasure. So can you briefly inform the listeners who you are and uh, what you do? Sure. Uh, my name is Dr. Jerry Brown. I'm an anthropologist and the co-author of The Psychedelic Gospels, The Secret History of Hallucinogens in Christianity. Um, I... From 1972 to 2014, I served as founding professor of anthropology at Florida International University in Miami, Florida. And uh, after my first LSD experience in 1973 uh, in the Rocky Mountains of the United States, I decided to uh, design and teach a course on psychedelics and culture. Uh, in doing that, I had to learn about ethnobotany, about mushrooms, mushroom identification, art history, theology, mythology, ethnology, a truly interdisciplinary course to look at the use of psychedelics in ancient civilizations, uh, such as uh, Hindus and ancient Greece, the Eleusinian mysteries, uh, indigenous cultures, and also to the modern mind explorers. To make a long story short, in 2006, my wife Julie and I, on an anniversary trip to Scotland, went to Roslyn Chapel and found a psychedella Amanita muscaria mushroom uh, sculpted into that the head of a green man sculpture in that church. And that was the catalyst for our eventual research journey throughout Europe and the Middle East, visiting churches and cathedrals, chapels and abbeys, looking for evidence of uh, psychedelic gospels, actually psychedelic art, psychedelic images, particularly psychedelic mushroom images in Christian art um, in those churches and cathedrals. Uh, we found a significant number of them in the places that we visited, which uh, inspired us to create the theory of the psychedelic gospels. Before we get into uh, Christianity, I just want to mention something about Hinduism because I remember many years ago I heard a Terence McKenna talk where he said he scoured the earth for uh, visionary representations or artistic representations of what he had experienced in uh, 
in his experiences with psychedelics. And I, at that point, I had only done ayahuasca, so I agreed with him. But when I experienced um, the DMT that you can smoke, uh, I started to disagree with Terence McKenna. And I think that the uh, Hinduistic uh, art is is very similar to what I've seen in uh, in those psychedelic experiences. And it's not because I was fascinated with Hindu Hinduism or Hindu art before. Actually, I thought it was all ugly. <laughs> so after those DMT experiences, I saw them with f- different eyes. So now I am very interested in Hinduism. Yeah, uh, that's, that's interesting you use that phrase, uh, different eyes, because we use the phrase... Uh, psychedelic gospel eyes or soma eyes to uh, represent looking at architecture, art history, Christian art, even scripture through the eyes of someone who has had the experience of uh, psychedelics. Uh, Talking about the Hindu culture, one of the classical uh, cases showing the role of psychedelics in an ancient major civilization is the uh, soma plant, the soma plant juice and God, actually it's trifold in the Hindu Rig Veda, the oldest of the, um, of the uh, Hindu writings before the Bhagavad Gita, before the Puranas in the Rig Veda. And it turns out and was identified by Gordon Wasson in his book, Soma, Divine Mushroom of Immortality, published in 1968, that Soma, uh, the the um, sacred plant of the Rig Veda, uh, turns out to be the, the psychoactive red and white dotted Amanita muscaria mushroom, which is people know very well from Scandinavian folktales uh, for that matter. So that becomes a very important study in establishing the historical uh, and ancient roots of psychedelics in um, in um, you know culture and civilization, certainly in the time of writing, because the Rig Vedas were a long-standing oral tradition passed down through millennium that were written down in the Sanskrit about 3,500 years ago. So the soma of the Hindu Rig Veda uh, is certainly one of the uh, flagship studies in the in the exploration of humanity's encounter with psychedelics. You mentioned Gordon Wasson and you debate it a bit in your book as well. Uh, But for people who don't know, I guess without him, we might have discovered psychedelics in the West at some point, but he was one of the earliest who brought it uh, forward. And uh, what always uh, made me He's a very confusing person because he's like this banker, J.P. Morgan, like what most people who do psychedelics consider are like the the criminals or the scum of the earth, the people who destroy everything. And I, I was also always fascinated by his usage or his uh, work with these mushrooms that it didn't like that he didn't bring it to his banker friends and like initiated them all. <laughs> well. Um... Unlike Albert Hoffman, the discoverer of LSD at Sandoz Laboratories in Basel, Switzerland, once he realized the powerful psychedelic properties of LSD, he bought it. He did bring it to the board of directors of Sandoz, 
which unlike JP Morgan was a pharmaceutical company and they saw the therapeutic potential of it and distributed it to psychiatrists and, and uh, around the key psychiatrists, including Stanislav Grof in Prague, the inventor of LSD psychotherapy, to, to really see if it was as promising as they thought as a um, psychotherapeutic uh, and a, a psychiatric agent. Um, to the contrary, R. Gordon Wasson, uh, who was um, started out as a, a journalist, a financial journalist, uh, came into J.P. Morgan as a banker, pioneered international banking. But because of his marriage to, um, to his Russian wife, they, um, they developed a passionate discussion, even on their honeymoon evening, when she discovered mushrooms in the, in the fields up in the Catskill Mountains of New York, uh, where their honeymoon uh, cottage was, and she lovingly embraced them. And he denounced them as, uh, you know, uh, poisonous fungi. And this was their first uh, marital spat. She won. She brought the mushrooms back to, to prepare them. But out of that, they developed a long conversation and really coined the words microphobe, cultures that fear mushrooms or have negative images about them, and microfeels uh, like the Slavic cultures that embrace mushrooms. Uh, that led to their first book, Russia, Mushrooms and History, and to them uh, introducing, or I should say reintroducing the magic mushroom to the modern world, and also uh, made Gordon Wasson aware of, uh, of Soma. So uh, it, it is due to Gordon Wasson and Valentina, his wife, that we know about these, and he is considered to be the father of um, modern ethnomycology. He brought us pioneering studies on the role of, <coughs> of Soma in the Hindu Rig Veda, he teamed up with Albert Hoffman, pharmacologist, um, discoverer of LSD, and Carl Rook, a, a um, professor of classical Greek and Latin um, languages and literature. And they, un they unraveled the mystery of Eleusis, the Eleusinian mysteries, where there was a, a sacred potion, the Kikion, taken at the ritual at the Temple of Demeter and the Telesterion. And this went on for 2,000 years. It went from a local cult of Demeter, uh, from Greek mythology of the story of uh, Demeter and Persephone, to a pan-Hellenic uh, cult uh, all across Greece. And then when Rome conquered uh, Greece, it became absorbed and known throughout the Roman Empire. And so he, he did a study of that, showing that it was a uh, psychoactive LSD-like fungus that was in the Kikion that created the visions that the luminaries of, of Greece, the poets, the scholars, the mathematicians, the doctors, the musicians, the politicians all participated in. He helped identify the reindeer herder shaman mushroom cult of the Siberian and other reindeer herders all the way from the Kamachkal Peninsula in the far east of Russia in Siberia, all the way to 
the um, reindeer people of Scandin Lapland and Scandinavia. Um, and finally, he revealed to the world the uh, practice of ancient shamanism using psilocybin mushrooms practiced by uh, the Mazatec people of the state of Oaxaca in southern Mexico, especially through his uh, participation in the all-night healing ceremonies of Maria Sabina. So Wasson certainly was not your typical banker. He was a amateur mycologist who eventually became uh, the preeminent authority on uh, mycology and especially arguing for the role of psychoactive mushrooms in the origins of religion. Where we disagree with Wasson and do so very much in our book through the photos in the book and the analysis in the book is in his um, arguing that the role of entheogens, plants that create the divine within, the role of entheogens in the Bible ends a thousand years BC, before Christ. And we argue that he did not um, pursue his own theory into the past the portals of the church, into the hallowed halls of Christianity, which we do. And we found um, compelling evidence, compelling visual and scriptural evidence of the presence of psychedelics in the history of Christianity and also in the very origins of Christianity. I've always been interested in, in the, the Gospels from uh, many different perspectives. Not that I've, I'm not like a, a Christian that goes to church. I don't even class myself as a Christian. But, but I've always been fascinated with the Gospels for various reasons. And they're very confusing because there's three, I mean, there's three things that I think about the Gospels. And they are all... I mean, I can never decide which one to go for. And one is complete historical accuracy. Like, you know, it just tells the story of this person. And uh, the second one is that with the Allegro one, that Jesus never existed. He was, in fact, just a mushroom. Or uh, like you document in your book, perhaps, that he uh, there's um, uh, a combination of the two. Yes, well... Um in our book, we applaud Allegro for having the insight and the courage to be one of the first people to link uh, psychedelics to ancient religions and to the origin of religion. We disagree with Allegro on three fundamental points. Uh, Allegro says that Jesus did not exist, that he was really a metaphor uh, for the uh, psychoactive mushroom. Uh, we believe that Jesus was a historical figure. Number two, he bases his analysis in the sacred mushroom and the cross, which was published in 1970, on uh, linguistic analysis, going all the way back to the earliest writings and tracing the word for mushroom and phrases throughout, coming up to an analysis of the Old and New Testament. And he argues that the entire, much of the Old and New Testament is a code for the uh, practice and ritual surrounding the psychoactive Amanita mushroom. Uh, his linguistic analysis, we believe, in accordance with many linguistic scholars, was faulty because he, he replaced many of the letters 
He just simply did not know from the text what certain letters were, and he speculated on what they were. So where his theory is based on linguistic speculation, our theory is based on compelling visual evidence of psychoactive mushrooms in Christian art, in frescoes, in sculptures, in stained glass windows, in mosaics. And lastly, Allegro uh, was openly uh, on a crusade to liberate people from the thrall of religion. Uh, we are not here to challenge anyone's fundamental belief in Christianity, but rather to reintroduce uh, Christianity to a practice which has been involved in many religions. In fact, we quote the words of Brother David Stendel Rost of the Order of St. Benedict, who says, if I can experience God through a sunrise on a mountaintop, why not through a mushroom prayerfully ingested? Um, but coming back, so, so there's where we are on Allegro, but coming back to Wasson, uh, we, we found out why he didn't pursue his theory into the, uh, into the church. Uh, we believe we've disproved it, and we've shown that there is compelling, uh, verifiable evidence of psychedelics in Christian art, and uh, that's where we depart from Wasson, and the bulk of our book is the presentation of these uh, stunning photographs, which uh, my wife, Julie, my wife and co-author, Julie, took um, in many small churches and large cathedrals like uh, Chartres Cathedral, Canterbury Cathedral throughout Europe. And this is the compelling evidence uh, that stands behind the theory of the psychedelic Gospels. This very, it's very hard to... Um also discredit Allegro in a sense because I've read his book and I mean I, I I just have to take his word for it that that translation is this and if I read someone's book that's also linguistic who says that translation is wrong I can't really it's very hard unless you dedicate your life to linguistics to to actually you have to believe either one <laughs> but but it's more fundamental than that it wasn't simply a question of this or that translation was wrong. It's that Allegro took a word, for example, and say there were seven letters in that word, but in the fragment of the text that he had, only four of the letters were there. So he would speculate and put three of the letters in to make the word. And if you go to the um, long appendix of Allegro's book, where he presents this analysis, uh, you'll see that. And many people who are certainly expert in linguistics have said this is highly speculative. So um, it's not just a question of translation. It's a question of what did the word mean in the, in the first place at all. And if you're trying to build a controversial theory on speculative data, uh, you're going to run into some strong headwinds which Allegro certainly did. Uh, in the, his biography, which was written by Judith Ann Brown, no relative of mine, um, his daughter uh, called uh, John Marco Allegro, the Maverick of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, she said that you know if he had had visual evidence, uh, he had one picture, the photo of the giant mushroom tree in the temptation scene in Plain Coral, France, uh, drawn a fresco made about 1291, uh, that, that he might have gotten a much better reception. And that's where we think 
that is the strong point of our book. Uh, after we made an initial discovery of a psychoactive mushroom in a Christian church uh, in um, Roslyn Chapel in Scotland, uh, we realized the words of Carl Sagan, the astrophysicist who said that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And certainly the claim that there's an alternative history to Christianity that involves psychedelics is an extra, extraordinary claim. And the research that Julie and I undertook throughout Europe and the Middle East, and that we document in her photographs of the psychoactive mushrooms that we found in these churches and cathedrals uh, is the compelling evidence of that proposition that there is a different master story to Christianity. And in a way, it's not so surprising because back in the sixth century, Pope Gregory said, let art be the Bible of the illiterate. And most of the people were illiterate, as we know, up to the invention of the Gutenberg galaxy and the printing press, the Gutenberg printing press. Um, so it was really in the art that this uh, not suppressed, but secret history of Christianity was um, documented. So you focus on clear visual uh, representations of uh, mushrooms in Christian art. Uh, but there's another aspect. You don't uh, dive into that because it's more speculative. Because from my experience also, when I've been in different churches on my travels and I've seen stained glass windows, they often have uh, the Holy Grail, which is not that surprising, but they, they often have it portrayed... Uh, I mean, like, when you have psychedelic eyes and you see this holy grail floating in the air with beams shooting out of it and that, you can't help to see it as some sort of ayahuasca goblet or soma drink goblet or something like that. But, of course, that's only speculation. That's probably why you ne you didn't talk about any of that in the book. But have you considered those things? Yes, we've we've considered those, but we consider that to be too speculative. I mean, you could go from uh, images of the Holy Grail uh, to blood, to fluids, to halos, and say these are all representations of the mushroom. But that's an interpretation. So what we focused on was specific psilocybin and Amanita muscaria mushroom images that are so clearly drawn that they cannot be mistaken. And number two, in some cases, so precisely drawn that ethnobotanists have been able to tell what variety of psilocybin they are. For example, uh, in the church, uh, the, the small church, uh, parish church of St. Martin de Vic in the center of France, um, there is from about the uh, 12th century uh, frescoes in the choir of the church, beautiful frescoes showing uh, Jesus entering Jerusalem. He's riding on the ass. The disciples are standing behind him with their hands upraised in a gesture of respect or awe. And the joyous youth are greeting him to Jerusalem uh, on the Passover in fulfillment of the prophecy. But when you look at this fresco in the upper right-hand corner, and these are color pictures that are all in our book, one of the youth is holding on to the stem of one of five large tan 
oblong, smooth psilocybin mushrooms. And that, if that's not interesting enough, Jesus is moving towards the opposite, the perpendicular wall, where there's a painting of the towers of Jerusalem. And there are the youth using a long knife to cut through these giant psilocybin mushroom stems. Now, they're very large, um, larger than they would occur in nature. And one of the things we know about Romanesque art is that size matters. So the artist is making these large uh, to, tell, to, to tell the, the viewer that this is important. This is important. If that were not enough, this, these uh, towers of Jerusalem are right in the same panel as the Last Supper. And what do we find in this uh, fresco of the Last Supper? There is Jesus and the disciples. On the table are mushroom caps. These are not bread because if they were bread, they would be loaves and broken apart by hands. These are the mushroom caps, the same long knives used to cut through the stems of the psilocybin mushrooms on the Tower of Jerusalem. And if you look very closely uh, at these, this image, which you can find in our book or on our, um, our website, psychedelicgospels.com, psychedelicgospels.com, you will see that into the hems of the disciple under the table, the artist has drawn one, two, three, four, five very distinct mushroom caps. It was in this church of St. Martin de Vic that uh, after we came upon this discovery that it grew late in the afternoon, um, the light was getting dimmer, the church bells rang, Julie and I felt almost as if we were transported back to medieval times and that the frescoes were kind of alive and speaking to us. And it was then that we had this aha moment that there is a true psychedelic gospel. This is the, the visual history of psychedelics and Christianity. We had now seen images of psychedelics in a chapel, an abbey, and a church in central France. And we had to stop and ask ourselves, what's going on here? Is this a marginal Christian cult um, in the forest, far from the control of the crown and the church? Are these some renegade hippie priests cavorting out uh, in the woodlands of central France on, on psilocybin mushrooms. Let's go to the high holy places of Christianity. Let's go to uh, Canterbury Cathedral in England. Let's go to Chartres Cathedral in France. Let's go to Hildesheim, uh, where you have the Church of St. Michael's, the uh, Michaeliskirche in Hildesheim, Germany, uh, which was built by Bishop Bernward, who was the tutor of Otto III, who became the Holy Roman Emperor, and who also, Bernward, was sainted by the Catholic Church. And we find an entheogenic legacy in bronze that he as a church builder and metallurgist had cast. So our next step was to confirm that psychoactive mushrooms were indeed present, even in the high holy places of Christianity. This was not a marginal cult, and it wasn't suppressed in Christianity, although it was secret for the ecclesiastical and the pagan elite and the pagan royalty uh, up until the coming of the Inquisition. 
In uh, the book of John in the New Testament, it mentions that uh, this herb uh, hyssop was used along with vinegar to alleviate the thirst of Jesus when he was on the cross. And I I have some piece of information I want to share with you, and uh, that's not in your book. You mentioned hyssop briefly, you just mentioned it very quickly, but not what I'm about to say. But the reason I want to say it to you is because it was when I was googling for other things surrounding this that I discovered your book so it's kind of like a a complete circle if I mention this to you but uh, I was uh, reading about Mozart and I I found out that when he was 14 he he went to the Sistine Chapel and he heard this uh, uh, this song by Allegri it's called Misere so I googled the song and I recognized it. Uh, you, you'll probably also recognize it if you hear it. But I, I, I wanted to find out the lyrics. So the lyric goes, But lo, thou requirest truth in the inward parts, and shalt make me to understand wisdom secretly. Thou shalt purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Thou shalt wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So I, I googled hyssop a bit, and uh, I discovered that... Uh, it, in fact, if you know absinthe, the real stuff, not the ones they sell these days, was quite psychoactive. And one of the common plants that this psychoactive component called tujon, I think it's pronounced, you can find that in hyssop. Aha. So, so basically hyssop has this mild psychoactive uh, uh, chemical and uh, this is what they gave to Jesus. You mentioned it briefly, but not the, with the absinthe connection. And uh, and also that lyric where it sounds very like a, a psychedelic ritual that you should purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. But that's, of course, speculative. But still, I thought it was interesting. Yeah, I very much appreciate it if you could uh, email that lyric or a reference to it to me. Uh, we do mention uh, hyssop. And uh, actually, we go into it a little more than I think you've uh, described here, because in our chapter on the dark church of Cappadocia, Turkey, uh, what we found in um, the dark church, which is one of many cave churches in the Cappadocia region uh, around the uh, city of Gorome in uh, in Turkey, was that in uh, a series of frescoes, a Christology of Jesus's life, in the last one, uh, or next to last one, of Jesus on the cross, which is uh, also uh, shown in our book, that as Julie was taking the photograph of it, she zoomed in and she saw that the uh, old man was hand- holding the, the, the pole, but on it was a red and white cap. And this was looked like very much like an Amanita mushroom cap. Now we know that there are no red and white sponges in nature. And we see that Jesus's body in this photograph is partly skeletonized, uh, which indicates that he is already in a state of transformation. Uh, So that's the piece of evidence that we presented in the book. And this can be looked at in one of two ways, uh, neither of which we can prove from the photograph. But one is that Jesus was given an entheogen to transcend life and move into uh, immortality while on the cross. Or number two, another other properties 
of Amanita muscaria, which is also known as Fliegenfilz or, or fly agaric, Fliegenfilz in German, is that it can create an analgesic effect that lessens pain. Uh, it can put a person into a deep sleep and give them an out-of-body experience. And in another controversial book by Hugh Schoenfeld called The Passover Plot, he hypothesized that Jesus actually survived the crucifixion and uh, went on to, to live. In fact, that he, he plotted his own crucifixion to fulfill, uh, to help fulfill the prophecies. So um, either way, this discovery of an Amanita muscaria uh, on the in place of the hyssop uh, in the dark church of Turkey is a remarkable discovery. And we found similar evidence in other cave churches in the Alhara Valley of, of Turkey, where early Christians uh, fled to escape Roman persecution. And Turkey was one, modern Turkey, was one of the earliest places Christians fled as, as early as the first century to avoid the horrible uh, persecution that they suffered at the hands of the Roman Empire. One thing that also is for me a sort of proof is that if you listen to Jesus's teachings and uh, whatever teachings I have received from the mushroom, they're quite identical as well. So that's also a point, I think. Yeah, absolutely here. And, and this is interesting. So you go into, for example, the New Testament Gospel of John 6, 51 through 56, uh, New Testament. And Jesus says, uh, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And that and the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. Now, what is going on here? I mean, we do not think that Jesus is inviting people uh, to cannibalism. Uh, that would have been repugnant both to Romans and Jews alike. And we think this is a metaphor for um, the juice and the uh, and the uh, actual body of the mushroom. And then if we look over at the Gnostic Gospels, which were, you know, early other Gospels of Jesus um, in the in, in um, Gnostic Christianity, which was popular, but eventually suppressed and deemed a heresy uh, by Orthodox Christianity by about 200 and the Gnostic, uh, many, and there was a discovery in 1954 in Upper Egypt by Nagamadi, uh, the town of Nagamadi, of what eventually was 52 Gnostic texts that were buried in the sands of Egypt uh, over a thousand years, over 1500 years ago. And in that, in the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus tells Thomas the, 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 this. Uh, he says to his disciples, compare me to someone and tell me whom I am like. Thomas said to him, Master, my mouth is wholly incapable of saying whom you are like. Jesus said, and I'm quoting, I am not your master. Because you have drunk, you have become intoxicated from the bubbling spring which I have measured out. He who will drink from my mouth will become like me. I shall become he and the things that are hidden will be revealed to him. Well, this is an amazing passage. Obviously, we're talking about a drink. 
Obviously, we're talking about intoxication or elevation of the spirit. And we're talking about a bubbling spring that Jesus has measured out. That means he knows the dose. And when you drink of this, there's a transpersonal emergence of souls. You will become like me and I will become like he. And the things that are hidden will be revealed in him. This is definitely a transpersonal altered state of, of consciousness, as are as is the Sermon on the Mount comes from a very expanded consciousness. This is certainly not uh, alcohol. And this reflects very much Jesus's teachings about the kingdom of heaven is within. And we believe that the, the psychoactive plants are the catalysts that reveal to ancient people in the circum-Mediterranean world who participated in these kinds of, uh, of uh, experiences uh, the experience of divinity and the experience of the immortality of the soul. One thing I also find interesting with with Islam, if if I don't know if you how many mosques you visited, but I think the decor, decorations in Islam, the patterns they have, are also very psychedelic. Uh, it's almost like they decided to focus on the what I used to call what I usually call the wallpaper of the psychedelic experience. What's a, around whatever you experienced, uh, the, the grid or the um, chrysanthemum kind of like patterns. And, uh, and the Christianity focused more on a visual representation or, or the mushroom itself. Yeah, uh, again, that's speculative and symbolic. Uh, we also have to remember that it was during uh, the dark ages and also through the period of Moorish expansion, uh, the conquest of Spain from 700 until 1492, that it was um, the this um, you know world that kept the knowledge of the Greeks and Romans alive, that that kept and developed mathematics. So these these patterns can also be attributed, uh, you know, to the world, this world's love of mathematics and mathematical patterns that reflect themselves in architecture and tiles. We, you know, certainly you have Aoma in um, the Persian world. You have um, the, the mana of the Hebrew Bible. We make a mention of these, but we do not go into them because we feel that we did not have original research in that area any more than we had on the role of psychedelics in uh, Buddhism, although there's a uh, interesting new book, Mike Cowley, out on the uh, psychedelic sacraments of the Buddha. So we focused on Christianity, where we had uh, unique evidence uh, to present of these psychoactive mushrooms in Christian art. If this uh, psychedelic gospel model or theory uh, would become accepted by the church for some reason uh, what do you what do you think they would bring back the Lucinian mystery kind of yearly annual initiation or what do you think the what what would be the what would happen if, if that was the case you think well um, you know it's not so far-fetched to think about this happening uh, when we consider that ayahuasca which contains uh, uh, DMT, which is certainly a very powerful psychoactive agent. And we know that ayahuasca has now you know, exploded out of the Amazon and is going global. 
but ayahuasca is used in two Catholic churches of Brazil, uh, Santo Daime and the Unión de Vegetal. And these have both been approved by the Brazilian Council of Bishops. So we also already have an example in a major uh, country of the acceptance by the Catholic Church of that country to use psychoactive ayahuasca as an avenue uh, to encounter and invoke uh, Jesus or the spirit of Jesus. Uh, we believe that if it were properly reintroduced into Christianity, it could complement ritual and text the Bible by bringing people, uh, giving people a direct experience of, of God. Um, and so we think it would enhance the religion because so many people now have gone away from institutionalized religion uh, because they feel it's too formal, too structural, and does not allow them or provide them uh, the direct ecstatic experience and uh, personal contact with the deity or the spirit world that they're seeking. Having said that, uh, we know that this would be uh, a big step. Uh, we know that uh, also, I, I cited Brother David Stendhal Ra, so we don't see this as a fundamental challenge to Christianity. Uh, we see that as reintroducing Christianity uh, to its roots. And we hope that this dialogue will open up. I invite any conversation, any positive, uh, constructive conversation with uh, people, uh, with uh, people who represent Christianity, who speak on behalf of Christianity, or are Christian uh, priests and religious leaders. Um, we knew it took 300 years for the church to apologize to Galileo uh, for, uh, you know, showing him the instruments of torture of the Inquisition and getting him to recant on his writings that um, the earth was not the center of the universe. Uh, we hope it will not take 300 years until a dialogue about the role of entheogens in Christianity uh, uh, is able to uh, open and uh, and flower. In my case, I during my teens, I went through that phase where you become an atheist and you hate all religions and it's all brainwashing. And in fact, psychedelics uh, made me uh, see religion differently so I could see it without the influence of the, these structures and all that dogma that's been placed upon it thousands of years later from those events uh, so it made me like uh, fall in love with the, the uh, most religions actually again uh, because I was uh, freed from this thing that I hated which I still don't like but I don't care about it anymore because it's that's it's just like uh, uh, stuff humans have come up with later yeah. you know yeah and I think for many of us uh, who experience psychedelics, um, who found, as, as I did, who found, um, you know, religion as I was exposed to it to be fairly sterile and arid. Uh, Julie and I, my wife and co-author Julie Brown, uh, say in the introduction to our book, in the invitation to readers, that it was during the 1960s and 70s through psychedelics that we had our first encounter and experience of the divine 
as a as a force that permeates um, the universe. And so this was uh, an authentic religious experience for us. And this takes us into two very interesting questions. One is, can psychedelics um, replicate or provide an authentic mystical experience? In our chapter on the miracle of Marsh Chapel, uh, we discuss a piece of research that was conducted in 1962 by Walter Pankey, a divinity study at Harvard, a student, a divinity student at Harvard. And he took two groups of Protestant divinity students, separated them in half on Easter Sunday uh, at Marsh Chapel, gave one a psilocybin dose, another a placebo of niacin B12. And nine out of the 10 people who'd had the psilocybin had a full-blown mystical experience, including the famous religious scholar, then a student, Houston Smith, who said this was the most powerful cosmic homecoming I've ever experienced. A follow-up study 25 years later by Rick Doblin, the founder of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, maps.org, M-A-P-S.org, confirmed this and found that this was still significant, one of the most significant experience in these participants' lives. This and other evidence um, shows that, yes, there can be uh, synthetic and plant-based psychedelics can create authentic mystical experiences. In fact, psychologist Walter Clark, talking about this experiment in Marsh Chapel, which is described in chapter six of our book, said there's no other experiments known to me in the history of the scientific study of religion better designed or clearer in their conclusion than this one. So that's the the fascinating uh, answer to that question. But this takes us into a much broader question of, you know, what is consciousness? What are we experiencing when uh, we move into these other dimensions, these other planes through psychedelics. And here, um, my experience has, in my own personal way, been similar to what Stanislav Grof, the founder of LSD psychotherapy, uh, concludes after decades of systematic studies of, uh, of uh, LSD sessions. He's guided more of these than anyone in the world, uh, three to 4,000 um, sessions of, uh, of LSD. And he concludes that he sees consciousness and the human psyche as expression and reflections of a cosmic intelligence that permeates the entire universe and all of existence. Have you had any comments from any Christians regarding uh, your book that people who are not uh, into psychedelics, I mean, that are Christian? Yeah, I've had, um, yes, I'm not, not from official. I mean, we have been in, our book has been endorsed by Brother David Stendel Rost, who is a Catholic priest of the Order of St. Benedict. Uh, and I have been interviewed by uh, Catholics, Southern Baptists, and other um, people uh, who are uh, radio hosts, or podcast hosts who grew up in a Christian environment. And they've told me that uh, they were somewhat, uh, as some people have been, 
uh, alienated or disen disenchanted with Orthodox Christianity. And this provides something that they knew or could never express or gave them an understanding that made sense to them. So this is, we have not had uh, to repeat any official response uh, in writing uh, from the Catholic Church or comment, but we have had uh, uh, positive discussions with Catholic uh, Catholics around these issues. Many people call uh, what we're going through now a sort of psychedelic revival. I'm not sure it ever stopped uh, after the 60s. Maybe there was like the 80s was some sort of break and then it continued slowly in the 90s and then it's increased. But if we consider that we're in a second revival or something since the 60s, you you lived through the 60s. So what do you think uh, is the biggest difference between those days and now when it comes to people discovering all this? Yes, uh, I lived through the 60s. My wife, Julie, was at Woodstock. And um, I'm very happy to still be alive and sharing this information. Uh, basically, I think the main differences are that as opposed to the, um, the uh, widespread use in mass culture uh, and, and the youth culture uh, inspired by Leary of psychedelics during the 1960s, we are now in a full-blown psychedelic renaissance that is based on medical and scientific research led by MAPS in the United States and the Beckley Foundation uh, in the UK to test these psychedelic substances for their medical and scientific properties, for their use with uh, cancer patients, for the use with post-traumatic stress disorder in veterans of foreign wars, uh, for their use with uh, um, autism, for their use with cluster headaches, uh, and for their, their role in creativity and scientific and artistic creativity. So this is a major difference between the uh, widespread uh, countercultural use of psychedelics in the 60s and the medical and scientific research. And as we saw with cannabis in the United States, legalization follows medicalization. In fact, there are initiatives underway on the ballot, I believe in the state of Oregon, and they're looking to do the same in the city of Denver, uh, to make psychedelic assisted psychotherapy uh, in a clinical setting legal. Uh, secondly, I think that during the 60s, it was touted that this LSD was sort of a new discovery. And in a, in a sense, we lost track of our, the long history that humanity has had, both in scripture, both in art, both in the archaeological record of its long, strange encounter with psychedelics. And today, when I speak with people in the psychedelic societies around the world, uh, I share that history as an anthropologist. I'm somewhat familiar with it. Uh, so that we see that this is not new, that, hu that hu human beings have used these psychedelic plants for healing, for divination, for encounter with the divine for millennia. And this is not something new, but it is part and parcel of the human uh, condition. 
What is also different is because of this medical and scientific foundation, the media is now viewing psychedelics favorably and microdosing and taking very small amounts, say one-tenth or one-fifth of a mega, uh, not one-fifth, but one-twentieth of a, of a mega dose of psychedelics of LSD or psilocybin can be used to enhance focus, creativity, productivity, and is uh, somewhat of a fad in the high-tech area of, of Silicon Valley in the United States. In fact, there was an article in Rolling Stone titled something like the drug that your, your, your boss would like you to take because it's going to make you more productive and more creative. In fact, Steve Jobs, and we talk about Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, in the beginning of our concluding chapter on the psychedelic renaissance, he loved LSD. And he said it was one of the things that helped him think different in the creation of Apple. So there are many different fundamental ways in which the psychedelic renaissance uh, that we're in right now is uh, is fundamentally different uh, from the 1960s. And I think has a much better chance of seeing psychedelics um, scientifically vetted and eventually moving into the mainstream of culture, and we also call, uh, Julie and I, in our book, for the establishment of sacred centers where people in the United States would have a right under the First Amendment of religious freedom to go and explore psychedelics for personal growth, spiritual and religious, in a safe environment with the availability of, of trained guides uh, if they would like them. So we see it as uh, fundamentally different from what happened in the 1960s and 70s. My understanding of the, the Gnostic uh, train of thought is that uh, in the Old Testament, the God that forbids Adam and Eve to eat the apple is the Demiurge. It's not the real God. It's like a lower one. And uh, so the snake is actually helping Adam and Eve, like Jesus said, be wise as serpents. But so... Uh, they eat the apple and they real or whatever fruit it was, but they realize that the demiurge is a false god, and so he gets angry in that. And uh, some you could claim that maybe they the is a symbolic way of they eating a mushroom or some psychedelic substance. So maybe that's why Steve Jobs has an apple that somebody took a bite of. <laughs> that is brilliant. I love that. I don't think anybody's made that connection before, but it's a fascinating connection. Uh, I see we're almost out of time, so I, 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 if I may, I'd like to say that you can uh, follow our work if your listeners are interested uh, by going to our website, psychedelicgospels.com. Uh, we are on Facebook. Our Facebook page is Psychedelic Gospels, and we post regularly uh, our own materials, our own interpretations, photographs, other interesting, relevant information on the psychedelic renaissance. And uh, you can also get our book uh, on Amazon or through your local bookseller by going to Amazon uh, and looking for psychedelic gospels. Great. It was uh, fun and interesting to talk to you. It's my pleasure. We really appreciate your uh, allowing us to uh, share our ideas with you and your listeners. Thank you so much. Go to psychedelicgospels.com if you want to check out the book. I'll post more links in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com. There you'll also find links to the podcast in social media. I appreciate that you listen to this podcast. 
I often ask myself if this podcast even exists if no one is listening. And as far as I know, people are. So thank you for doing that. If you want to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. A link can also be found on naturalbornalchemist.com. If you become a Patreon, you'll get access to new episodes before everyone else, as well as access to a bunch of other rants, recordings, deleted material and behind the scenes. I call this place in the digital space the Round Table of the Divine Mystery. So please join us, patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. On occasion I've placed and quoted the scientist Rupert Sheldrake and recently I discovered that his son makes music. There was no way I could not check that out and as it happens I love it. His name is Cosmo Sheldrake and is a vocalist, multi-instrumentalist and producer. His album comes out at the same time as this episode so if you are listening to this as it is released then this song you are about to hear is as fresh as it gets. It's called Come Along. The artist is Cosmo Sheldrake and the album is The Much Much How How and I. Go to cosmosheldrake.com to check it out. Next Sunday we are going to dive into the weird and wonderful world of the Mormons. Freedom is in the mind. Come along, catch a half a lump. Sit with me on a muddy clump. We'll sing a song of days gone by Run along now, don't be glum Get you gone now, have some fun Don't be long for the end is nigh Don't let moments pass along And waste before your eyes March with me in the borough grows Come with me in the slightly toes and Come, 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 come along now Run away from the humdrum We'll go to a place that is safe from Greed, anger and boredom We'll dance and sing till sundown And feast with abandon We'll sleep when the morning comes And we'll rise by the sound of the bird song We'll be here when the world slows down And the sunbeams fade away
with me, catch a rare type specimen Cuddle up with a hesitant skeleton We'll break our fast with friends Once we're fed we shall disappear rapidly Many moons to the west of here in Napoli Our journey never ends Shut your ears when sirens sing Tie our bands to your feet Listen up and you won't go wrong again Float along on the first the song and then get to where the two ends meet. Come, 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 come along now. Run away from the humdrum. We'll go to a place that is safe from greed, anger, and boredom. We'll dance and sing till sundown and feast with abandon. We'll sleep when the morning comes and we'll rise by the sound of the bird song.